Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. So did y'all hear that text? It's a hard one. Let's just admit that at the outset. Really hard text. One of my seminary professors used to say that there are certain texts that terrify texts that terrify. And I believe that what Jesus says here is one of them. It's very strongly worded, but I think its message is quite clear. What is the main message? Well, here it is very simply discipleship. According to Jesus, discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. Discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. Jesus is saying that to follow him, to believe in him means that you ally yourself to him and his kingdom. Above, every, above everything else. Uh, the great 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously put it like this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not the most appealing frame for you to hear as you meet us this morning, and yet such important words from our Lord. We're, we're in the third week of this four-week study on this puzzling year that we've been through here in 2020. And what we're doing is really trying to reflect on what lessons God might be teaching us this year. We've talked about control, how God is trying to wean us off of our desire to be in control. Last week, Will, who very ably filled in for me as I was quarantined, uh, thank you, Will, uh, talked about togetherness and the importance of friendship. And, and today we're going to look at the idea of, of allegiance, at the, of the cost of discipleship. Um, you know, one of the hallmarks of American Christianity over the last few generations has been that it is culturally acceptable, and in some areas, culturally preferable even, to be a Christian. This is one reason, among many, why American Christians typically have not really experienced significant broad-scale suffering. And for that, we should be grateful, by the way. I don't mean to sound like some sort of super spiritual person that wants to invite more suffering. I don't want to do that, nor do I want you to do that. However, this historical cultural reality also means that most of us who are Christians in America have not had to follow or consider very deeply where our allegiances really lie. But what is COVID doing? What is COVID doing? Well, COVID's inflicting collective trauma. It's inflicting collective trauma on all of us, isn't it? Um, it's causing really significant suffering in manifold ways. All of us have experienced that in some degree. So it's not just Christians, of course, who are experiencing this. It's, it's everyone. And, and it's in suffering. 
It's in harder times where we are lovingly pressed by our Father to consider hard questions. Why do I love control so much? Where does my trust really lie? And who or what am I most loyal to? Where does my allegiance lie? Have I really counted the cost? Have you really counted the cost of following Jesus Christ? And is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth the cost? If you look at this passage, Jesus uses a really strong verb, cannot. Cannot. Three times. Verse 26, 27, and verse 33. He's saying that if you want to be a follower of his, a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, this is your pledge of allegiance. He's calling all who hear him. And the crowds were listening to him. Luke tells us in verse 25 to consider what it means to follow him before they set out on the journey. So I want to, with you this morning, ask four questions as we reflect on the words of Jesus. First, does your allegiance to Jesus trump your allegiance to your family? Does your allegiance to Jesus trump your allegiance to your family? Look at verse 26. Jesus doesn't start slow, does he? He's like Mike Tyson in the first round, throwing punches As hard as he can. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says very provocatively, very radically actually, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, whoa, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot, is not able to be my disciple. Now, this is hyperbole. Jesus is being hyperbolic here. He doesn't mean that his followers must hate Their families. Let's just read the Bible intelligently. Um, In other places, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And surely, some of our closest neighbors are our family members. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you and you'll live long in the land. So this is not an isolated comment from Jesus. However, he puts it this bluntly. He he puts it this forcefully, listen, to highlight this reality. Here's the reality Jesus wants to highlight. Allegiance to Jesus must come before allegiance to family. Allegiance to Jesus must come before allegiance to family. Jesus comes first, he says. Jesus is Lord. Now, think with me. In the context of the first century, when Jesus first spoke these words, making a choice to follow Jesus, to apprentice yourself to Jesus, was in so many cases a real life or death decision. A a Jewish person in the first century who chose to become a follower of the way, as Christians were first called, almost certainly was going to breach relationship with his or her family. To follow this man, this rabbi, who people said was raised from death into life, it, it was scandalous, just as it is today still in so many parts of our world. Casual devotion to Jesus Casual devotion to Jesus was unheard of. And this can certainly be the case in our day as well. Some of you have experienced this, I'm certain. I remember when Marianne and I were in seminary. One of my seminary roommates was getting married. And I was in his wedding. We went to his wedding in New Jersey. And um, the, the lady that she was, he was marrying um, had become a Christian in her later years and met my friend Greg. And, and at the wedding, her family refused to speak with her during the entirety of the ceremony and during the entirety of the celebration. It was the cold shoulder over and 
over again. And we had been prepared for that to happen because of her conversion to Christianity. And yet it struck me so strongly in the moment. And I know that some of you, some of you can relate to this on a really personal level. Some of you have had to rupture long-standing relationships, even with family members, to devote yourselves to Jesus. Some of you have experienced this. You've, you've felt the tension and the rejection at Thanksgiving meals around the table. You, you've been left out of family discussions or maybe even out of a family inheritance. You've, you've felt isolated and alone around the people you grew up with. You've had to have really hard conversations and sometimes maybe hear really difficult words from relatives. Why? Because you've allied yourself to Jesus Christ. You've said, Jesus is Lord. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Now, others of you have not had to deal with this or experience this. So I want us to, together this morning, listen to the words of Jesus. Does your allegiance to Jesus really, at the end of the day, if it comes down to it, trump your allegiance to your family? Let's just admit that's a really hard question. Can we admit that together? Let's do justice to the Bible's Um, validity and its power. It's, It's a hard question, and yet God speaks to us that the pain and the heartache of allegiance to Jesus, listen, is well worth it. Listen to what Jesus says elsewhere. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Second question, does your allegiance to Jesus trump your allegiance to comfort? Doesn't get much easier for us, friends. Uh, Jesus follows up with his strong statement in verse 26 with an equally piercing word in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his or her own cross and come after me cannot, there's that word again, be my disciple. Now, 1426 means that the decision to become a Christian, the decision to follow Christ might cost you very close relationships. But this verse, 27, says that the process, the process of being a Christian will certainly cause you suffering. It will certainly cause you difficulty. And COVID, I think, among many things, is teaching us this. It's forcing on us this question. Does your allegiance to Jesus Christ come before your allegiance to a comfortable life? Both of the the words in this verse that Jesus says, the word bear and the word come, they're in the present tense, which indicates an ongoing and continual action. That's a lot of scholar talk to say this. Whoever's not willing to live a life of continual cross-bearing, Jesus says, a life of continual cross-bearing cannot be a disciple. Now, the crowds that Jesus was speaking to would have undoubtedly been shocked and appalled by that imagery in a way that we today are not because the cross has become the most ubiquitous religious symbol on the planet. But in Jesus's day, a cross, a crucifixion was demeaning to the nth degree. It was dehumanizing. It was cruel. It was the ultimate form of shaming corporate punishment in the world. And as we know from the New Testament's record of Jesus's own experience, a criminal in Rome sentenced to crucifixion would carry the horizontal horizontal bar of his cross from the prison cell to the place of his crucifixion. 
And you can read the end of the Gospels and see how this happened to Jesus. All along the way, he would be insulted and beaten and spit upon and laughed at. It was, in t- it was a picture of, of, of intense persecution and suffering. So Jesus, he's not exactly a master salesman here, is he? Jesus is not exactly making people really, really strongly desire to follow him. He doesn't pitch really ever the vision of an easy life, the vision of the lavish life. And, and I think, I think COVID might be forcing this question on us in particular ways. This is, man, this is such a difficult teaching for us. We have to be honest about that, I think. If our hearts are going to be open to what Jesus is saying, we love comfort. I love it. We love ease. And it's sadly the case that perhaps the most significant false teaching in the church today that bears the name Christian claims that we should follow Jesus precisely because it will lead to a life of comfort and wealth and prosperity and ease, which is evil and wicked as a teaching, and should be soundly rejected. So what is Jesus teaching us? What is God saying to us in this puzzling year? Here's what he's saying. The Christian life really is one of joy. It is. The Christian life is one of peace. It's one that is satisfying, but all of that takes place in the midst of cross-carrying. That's why it's such a profound life. If you're here and you're skeptical about Jesus, if you're, if you're skeptical about his words, if you're not a believer, or if you're not sure where you stand with faith, if, if this sounds ridiculous to you, well, I can relate, frankly. But I'd, I'd love for you to just ask some of the Christians in your life or some of the Christians here today about their struggles, about their experiences of Jesus' love for them in the midst of struggles. Listen, we've got terminally ill people here. We've got depressed people. We've got mentally ill people. We've got people whose home lives are anything but pretty. We've got people who are unemployed. We've got people who are outcasts and outsiders. We've got people who feel alone. All of them Christians. Because we know that becoming a Christian doesn't necessarily make your life easier. It doesn't. But it certainly will make your life better. And those are different things. How can life be better? When you're carrying a cross. Because you're not ever carrying it alone. You have a shepherd who's with you. You have a brother who's for you. You have a father who listens to you. You have a God who identifies with you and, in fact, loves you. And if you're unsure about giving up comfort to have Jesus, there's a long track record in the history of the world of that going very well for people. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of everything. And I count everything as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Question three, does your allegiance to Jesus trump your allegiance to stuff? Discipleship is more than a willingness to break close relationships to ally yourself with Jesus. And it's more than continual cross-bearing to ally yourself with Jesus. It's also, as Jesus tells us here, a distancing of yourself from your attachment to possessions. From your attachment to stuff. Look at verse 33. Any of one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
Again, here's the word, cannot. Cannot be my disciple. We don't all have to be poor to be Christians, but we must be willing to be poor to be Christians. It's the bottom line. Very clear of what Jesus is saying here. Allegiance to Jesus means that knowing Jesus, as Paul said in Philippians 3, and being found in Jesus is our treasure. It is our most valued possession. If you want to see what that looks like, I'd encourage you to go on a foreign mission trip with us. We have one coming up this summer, Lord willing, if COVID is um, taken care of by then. I, I remember a number of years ago, I went on a trip to Greece And most of the time we spent there was working with the refugee community who were at that time flooding into Central and Southern Europe from Afghanistan and the Middle East. And I met this friend named Solomon. Solomon had become a Christian early in his life. When I met him, he was probably 17 years old and he was a refugee from Afghanistan who had come to Afghanistan because his house had been blown up by a bomb in the war and his family had all perished. He just happened to not be in the house at the time. He'd lost everything in this bombing and made his way to a completely strange city in Athens. And I I do want to tell you that the reason I remember Solomon is because rarely have I seen someone with such a spirit, uh, with such a spirit of of real, real joy, with such a spirit of vitality in life. Someone who had nothing except Jesus. Remember Jesus' story about the rich young ruler in Luke 18, a very impressive guy who had a very remarkable life and yet was unwilling, Jesus tells us, to part with his great wealth. This is, this is clearly a stumbling block today. Maybe it's a stumbling block for you and your discipleship. We feel the pull of possessions on our hearts all the time. We're easily numbed by affluence into a sedated spiritual life. Maybe, maybe COVID is being used by God to awaken us to this reality in our lives. Maybe God is teaching us that when we claim to be his, when we believe into Jesus, Jesus becomes our master And all of our lives and all of our possessions belong not to us, but to him. Do you believe that? Every cent that you earn in this life from hard work and from shrewd investing and from family inheritance, all of it belongs to Jesus. Every second of your time in this life belongs to Jesus. Every moment you spend at work, at home, with family, with friends, every valuable in your life belongs to Jesus. Your house, your cars, your trucks, your phones, your clothes, your phones, your your collections, your phones. Did I mention phones? Jesus asks for total allegiance. All of our gifts, all of our resources, all of our talents, all of our lives belong to him and are at his service. And once again, I want you to hear that this exchange of possessions for a life of discipleship, a life of discipleship to Jesus is infinitely worth it. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might know the story of Moses, who was a prince in Egypt, the prince of Egypt. I think I've heard of a movie called that. And uh, a man who grew up with a lavish life and the best education and access to any resource that he wanted, and yet he left it all. The author of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26 tells us why. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Last question. During COVID, have you counted the cost of allegiance to Jesus? Have you counted the cost? That, That really can be the summarizing question. We see Jesus use two illustrations. Anna read it for us, verses 28 through 32, to make the point that all of us should count the cost before bowing in allegiance to Jesus. First, he speaks of a builder who begins to build a tower without first seeing if he's going to have enough money to complete it. And this man becomes an object of ridicule, verse 29 and 30. What he's done is foolish. And then Jesus gives another example. He says that seeking to follow Jesus without first counting the cost, it's like a king who goes into battle against an army that's twice the size of the army he leads. And he does this without first considering whether he should negotiate a peace treaty. And Jesus says, this guy's not only foolish, but he's going to, his decision is going to result in his and many others' destruction. Jesus is suggesting here that this should be the way of discipleship. You should assess whether you are ready to take on the personal commitment and sacrifice required to follow Jesus. Now, many of us who are Christians have never had to assess that. Never. Maybe it's because you were born into it and you truly do believe, but it's always just kind of been your thing. Maybe it's just been easy for you. Maybe you've never thought of another way. It might be a good thing. It might be a good thing that COVID is pressing on us that question. You know, honestly, at this point, you might be thinking, why why would anyone want to follow Jesus? Why would anyone do this? I know, Luke, you said it's all worth it, but pastors are supposed to say it's worth it. That's my job. To come up here and tell you it's worth it. I think we have to see. I really want you to understand that Jesus did not use these images in this language to prevent people from trusting him. And to prevent people from following him. He used these images and languages to prevent people from trusting and following him him inconsiderately. What is COVID doing? It's, It's, I hope, forcing us to consider if following Jesus is worth it to us. It's a part of the larger cultural movement of the end of nominal Christianity. Maybe the Lord is using COVID to say, when you begin to experience loss, when you begin to experience loss of relationship or comfort or stuff, is your faith still there? Is Jesus still valuable to you? Which is really another way of asking, have you encountered Jesus in all of his resurrection, glory, and grace? Have you jumped into the deep end with Jesus? You know, it's possible to go to a pool party and sit by the side of the pool and get soaking wet. So that if you leave the party, your parents pick you up, they're going to think you went swimming. But you never got in the pool. You were just really, really close to it. It's the same in the Christian life. It's possible to be really, really close to Christians and really, really close to to Jesus. So much so that people think you're experiencing him, but you never jumped in the pool at all. So are you only nominally, partly, culturally committed to Jesus? Or have you encountered his grace? Let me close with just telling you two things. If you're not yet a Christian or if you're not sure, Jesus does ask here. He does. He does ask here for you to consider what it means to become one of his followers. And here's the truth. This isn't just pastor talk. This is personal talk. It's the best possible life. It's a life of, it really is a life of experiencing joy and, and love. It's a life shared in community with others. It's a life where you can enjoy the presence of your creator and redeemer. You should become a Christian. 
You should. You should trust in Jesus. It's reasonable intellectually, and it's satisfying emotionally, and it's also historically true. But it's a life that demands your complete allegiance to Jesus. Why? Because the one who gave us everything deserves for us to be willing to give anything for him. If you've counted the cost and and you see Jesus as valuable, then then you're ready to agree with Jim Elliott, the, the late missionary, who says he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, the main thing I want you to hear, the main thing the Spirit calls us to consider is that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth loss. Jesus is worth suffering. What Jesus calls basic discipleship is actually quite radical, isn't it? It, It's complete devotion to him and to his cause, and he's worth it. He's worth giving up everything for. Jesus tells us elsewhere that whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. The cost of discipleship, the, the cost of allegiance can, can only be understood really with, with the arithmetic of the gospel. It can only be gotten with, with kingdom math. I don't think they teach kingdom math at Great Hearts. Pretty sure they don't. But the Bible teaches kingdom math. What does that mean? Let me quote from John Stott. Here's what he writes. Jesus asks us to deny ourselves and follow him for his own sake. Surely this is why he describes the renunciation he demands as taking up the cross. Jesus asks no more than he gave. He asks a cross for a cross. We should follow him neither just for what we can get, nor for what we can give, but supremely because of what he gave. He gave himself. Will it cost us much? It cost him more. He left his father's glory the immunities of heaven, the worship of countless angels when he came. He humbled himself to assume man's nature, to be born in a stable and laid in a manger, to work at a carpenter's bench, to make friends with rustic fishermen, to die on a common cross, to bear the sins of the world. Only a sight of the cross will make us willing to deny ourselves and follow Christ. Our little crosses are eclipsed by his. Our little crosses are eclipsed by his. If we only catch a glimpse, you see, of the greatness of Jesus' love, to suffer such shame and pain for us who deserve nothing but judgment, only one course of action is left. How can we reject? How can we deny one who has loved us so deeply? Let's pray.